Let's take this a little deeper as it relates to the COVID-19 pandemic. You argued that white Christian nationalism wasn't just associated with blaming minorities outside of the country. It was also linked to whites blaming minorities inside the country from their disproportionate infection rates. Early on in the pandemic, it became clear that the poor the minority communities were being infected with COVID-19 at a higher rate. Help us understand the contradiction of facts with racist views among white Christian nationalism. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Trip Hawthorne, Cindy Foldenlore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guests for this week's CBF podcast conversation are Dr. Philip S. Gorski and Dr. Samuel L. Perry. Phil is the chair of the Department of Sociology at Yale University. Sam is associate professor of sociology at the University of Oklahoma. Gentlemen, thank you for joining the conversation. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, we're honored to have you on. Look forward to having a conversation about this new book uh, that we'll uh, drop here in just a second. Uh, but but how are things in, in your world? Uh, you know, living different parts of the country, uh, but doing similar type work around sociology. Uh, Phil, we'll start with you. Uh, things are busy at the moment. We're sort of in the heat of the semester, though not much heat out, out of doors here right now. We uh, winter hasn't quite let go of uh, New England, I'm afraid, but otherwise fine. Sam, what about you? Yeah, same. We're uh, busy uh, traveling a lot this semester, which I'm thankful for finally being able to get out from under COVID a little bit and people are a little bit more open uh, to fly outs and that kind of thing. And uh, we're just getting ready in Norman, Oklahoma for some tornadic activity around this time of year. <laughs> That's a new term that I'm going to add to the vernacular. Uh, sir. <laughs> like, you you learn it quick. <laughs> you quick right here. I have a friend that lives in Norman. And when I was taking a look at his house, he's like, hey, I want to show you our tornado uh, shelter in the garage. And I was like, did these come standard in every house out here? And he's like, yeah, pretty much. They come standard. Um Yep. So you guys have a, a new book out, uh, The Flag and the Cross. You examine white Christian nationalism and its threat to American democracy. You wrote, we define white Christian nationalism and identity, white Christian nationalism using a constellation of beliefs. These are beliefs that, we argue, reflect the desire to restore and privilege the myths, values, identity, and authority of a particular ethnocultural tribe. These beliefs add up to a political vision that privilege that tribe 
and they seek to put other tribes in their proper place. Uh, Phil, walk us through the conception uh, of this book. So we, Samuel and I, have both been working on the subject of Christian nationalism for, for quite a long time. And uh, in more recently have gotten interested in the ways in which Christian nationalism is entangled with, uh, with whiteness as well. And so we kind of wanted to do a couple of things in this book. Um, we wanted to put our, uh, our kind of skill sets and knowledge bases, which are a little bit different, but complementary. We wanted to put those together. We wanted to kind of think through this problem about how race is related to Christian nationalism together. And I guess, you know, most of all, we wanted to uh, kind of take the work that we've been doing and just try to put it in a, you know, just a very plain spoken, straightforward way, not a lot of jargon, uh, you know, not a ton of uh, charts or, or graphs, you know, more than more than is needed. And, and then just really to kind of answer a couple of, of very basic questions. So what is white Christian nationalism? When did white Christian nationalism first emerge? Uh, how does it still work? How is it still at work in our politics today? And then last but not least, why do we think it's a threat to American democracy? For the sake of brevity, I'll often refer to white Christian nationalism as WCN. Um, for many that live outside of this worldview, it's hard to understand or to justify it. However, each of us have cultivated our worldview from uh, an experience and influence. And the book, you framed this around the concept of deep stories. You wrote, what makes deep stories deep is they have deep roots in culture. Deep stories have been told and retold so many times across so many generations that they feel natural and true, even and perhaps especially when they're at odds with history. And some, a deep story is more of a myth than history. More precisely, it is a mythological version of history. Sam, take us a little deeper here. Yeah, so the idea of deep story we're, we're taking from uh, Hawks Child's work, uh, Strangers in Their Own Land, where she talks about how uh, uh, the workers she was able to observe were really guided by this, this not just a myth, but really an understanding of, of, of their own uh, place in, in the world and how things move and, and uh, in the history of, of, of where they got to where they are. And I think that deep story in Christian nationalism or white Christian nationalism really is about uh, the nation was founded for uh, and by people like us, white uh, traditionalist uh, Christians with the right values and the right kind of cultural uh, uh, priorities uh, and has always been uh, for people like us. And yet that deep story is under attack. It's being threatened by outsiders by uh, it. And the, those enemies have changed over time. Uh, it is, it is, uh, changed in terms of the ethnic threats. It's turned, changed in terms of the religious threats. Uh, within the past few decades, even it's changed in, in terms of, of uh, you know, the threats of immigration or threats of Barack Obama, threats of Muslims, uh, the threats of secular Americans, all, all violating this deep story of, 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 you know, America was supposed to be this kind of place, our kind of America as we know it. You notice in these phrases that you hear thrown around, like, our way of life is under attack for America as we know it, or where is my country uh, gone? Uh, and I think that taps into this deep story that they feel like is being violated. All is not right. And so uh, really Christian nationalism is both a response to that perception of threat, but it's also something that uh, normalizes that deep story and, and carries along that deep story and the myths that uh, Americans who buy into that ideology continue to like espouse and repeat. There's a unique, unique aspect of this in the sense of you can talk about white nationalism, but then the fact that y'all have written about white Christian nationalism. So it, it tells us that there's a theological um, root to some of this. Um, you wrote this us versus them tribalism may seem unchristian, the glorification of violence even more so, but not if seen through the lens of end of time theology we mentioned earlier and the sharp division between good us and evil them. It's a gory tale of spiritual warfare. Uh, Phil, help us better understand the theological framework of white Christian nationalism. 
Sure. So I think you make a very important point. There are, are, are times when folks will respond to some of our, our work and they'll say, I don't really understand what's Christian about this. Uh, or they'll say, uh, you know, that doesn't, that's not my kind of Christianity or that's, that's fake Christianity. And, you know, Sam and I are sociologists. We're not theologians. I mean, we're interested in theology, but, uh, you know, we're not going to make any pronouncements on it. So whether or not this is genuine Christianity or not, we'll, you know, we'll leave that for, for folks who are more qualified to sort out. But uh, this much I think we can say is that it, historically you can kind of see that white Christian nationalism does draw on different threads or at least different interpretations of of scripture, and you know, you mentioned one of them, which is, you know, sort of the end time story, and especially this. What's really important here is this idea of a kind of final battle between good and evil, where you know we're good, uh, and and those others, whoever they might happen to be, are are evil. Um, another piece of it is uh, what we call the promised land story, and this is a kind of a way of understanding. Uh, you know, certain parts of the Old Testament or Jewish scripture, right, which is, you know, understanding in a way the United States is a, a, as the promised land and understanding Americans in a way as a chosen, chosen people. Um, you know, today we more often talk about American exceptionalism, but you don't have to go back that far in history for people to really talk very explicitly this way. That's how the, the New England Puritans understood themselves and how they understood North America. So those are kind of two pieces. And then the third piece um, is this, uh, this kind of pro-slavery theology that was developed, which, you know, the most common version of it is this idea of the curse of Ham, which is you know, the idea that uh, Ham's descendants uh, are, are, were cursed by God and condemned to everlasting servitude, and that their descendants are uh, People, people of Africa, which provided a, a justification uh, for, for, for their enslavement. And of course, you don't really hear it quite in that version uh, much anymore, but uh, you know, it does, there's still sort of a version of this, which is something, you know, it's kind of, well, you know, kind of the sort of the cultural, you know, well, there's something about, you know, black culture right? Or there's something, you know, well, you know, it's kind of some problem with the kind of moral culture of, of African-Americans. And that's kind of, a, you know, in other words, you know, if, if they're not doing particularly well, you know, maybe they shouldn't be. I mean, maybe that's their, their just, just desserts. And so that's, that's, uh, that's kind of, those are sort of the, the, the roots of, uh, the kind of scriptural roots of this white Christian nationalist ideology. And that's sort of the way that uh, the form that it would take still today. There's a, a brilliant section in chapter one in which you lay out some of the common theological statements of WCN. Do you mind if we walk through a few of these? Uh, you know, one is I consider founding documents like the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution to be divinely inspired. Sam, why is this a critical theological framework for this movement? I think that taps into both. both uh, so the way we talk about Christian National or WCN in the in, in the book, we talk about it as a deep story and also a vision uh, for America as it as it should be. And so I think the questions that we're using really tap both into that deep story of uh, of America having a special connection with God, being divinely ordained. So we have two questions that that tap into that that talk about the founding documents being divinely inspired and the success of the United States being part of God's plan. So in those questions, kind of tapping this conception of like, we have an intimate, a special relationship. God likes us best. And we have this kind of uh, a close connection. And even when we're disobedient, God, you know, wants to, wants to bring America back, not write us off because we are founded on the rest of those questions really have to do with that vision of America as it should be. And these are the ones that the federal government should, 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 should. And it's kind of like tapping into these, uh, tapping into that vision of the kind of America that these these uh, you know Americans who more more buy into this Christian nationalist ideology would would want to see a one one in which there is virtually no separation of church and state one in which uh, uh, the federal government can make explicit statements privileging Christianity 
um, that uh, religious symbols and prayer in public schools, in, in that we understand them in culture war terms as like Ten Commandments on the courthouse lawn or uh, crosses on, on state seals or, you know, teacher-led prayer and Bible reading in public schools it would be the kind of Americans that would say, no, that would be a great thing because it would mean Christianity would be on the ascendant and we'd be teaching children what they should know, which is our, our ethnocult. Um, so I think that's that's kind of how that questions like that, the founding documents and questions like that fit into this overall conception of white Christian nationalism. Let's talk about uh, January 6th. Um, you, you write about it. Uh, the Capitol insurrection was like an eruption of a volcano. The pressure has been building for decades. The election simply sent the pressure shooting towards the surface where it erupted into violence on January 6th. You know, for those that maybe didn't see the signs of, to continue with this metaphor, the earthquake, the, the, the steaming from the summit, the disbursement of gases leading to this great eruption. Phil, what, what were some of the signs that we should have seen that this was coming? Well, I, I think, um, you know, uh, folks who pay close attention to religion and politics in the United States have seen this coming for a while and have been warning about it, uh, you know, for some time. But I think, um, you know, what, and, and, you know, this is in part just because, you know, to kind of continue the metaphor, there just were all these pressures building, building underground, you know, this, uh, you know, America's sort of demographics are changing. It's you know, becoming uh, a less white country. Uh, there's been a lot of another, you know, huge wave of immigration to the United States. So there's, you know, it's becoming a much more uh, diverse population in that sense. There's, uh, you know, it's, you know, we're in a way in a, you know, kind of a post-Protestant United States now too. I mean, you know, Protestants are now for the first time in American history, uh, a minority instead of a majority of the country. And, um, you know, America has always been a very plural country. It's always been a diverse country compared to, to many other countries. But I think this sort of diversity, um, you know, just has become increasingly threatening, you know, and in particular, um, you know, has made some folks worry that, well, you know, if we're no longer the majority of the country, then majority rule means that we're no longer going to be in control of the country. And so what does that make us feel about democracy? How does that make us feel about uh, one person, one vote? Well, you know, not, not very good. And so, uh, you know, a lot of the, you know, kind of the big, Donald Trump's big lie about the, the stolen election, um, and then uh, the kind of attempt to overturn uh, a free and fair election and interrupt the peaceful transfer of power that we saw on January 6th. You know, really, we're in that sense, just to, you know, you know, if you think about tecton those all these tectonic plates, you're kind of just pushing against each other until the pressure builds and builds and builds, and then, you know, kind of explodes into into view. That's that was really why we chose this metaphor of the volcano. I mean, it's where you can finally see all this underground pressure, uh, you know, kind of uh, above ground as it were and, uh, and, and in daylight. So um, that's really why we chose that metaphor. I would just, you know, just to, just to piggyback on what, what, what Phil is saying, something that we're trying to argue in the book is that January 6th, and this is why I think the eruption, the eruption metaphor is apt, is because I, I think the, the temptation is to see the the Capitol insurrection January 6th as this anomalous event that was just like some bad actors or some, you know, some some people that just for some reason got it in them to go to the Capitol and they don't represent anything bigger than that. I mean, we actually still get that kind of pushback that it's just a marginal fringe kind of thing. And I think what we're trying to do, and we're able to do this, I think, with survey data is to demonstrate like the underlying ideology uh, beneath a lot of what we saw at the Capitol is actually far more pervasive than many realize. It's, it's, it, it has taken hold of a lot of Americans and it's not just, it actually has a very long history in the United States. And so it's not something that is fringe. Uh, it's something, the Capitol was, was an extreme example of, of what, what can happen under the right circumstances, but in terms of the underlying ideology, the us versus them, the our country, not theirs, uh, kind of language that is wrapped up in white Christian nationalism, I think is, was on display that day. And so uh, an eruption, signifying a whole lot of other forces like that moving beneath the surface is exactly what we're talking about. You know, for many that didn't understand, um, 
the reach of this worldview among Americans, maybe even their neighbors. Uh, what most people don't understand, as you were just, you know, alluding to, is that this mentality has been around for for centuries, uh, long before even Manifest Destiny was a twinkle in the eye of racist, destructionist, you know, prospectors moving across the American West to take uh, what they believe divinely inspired to be theirs, right? Or even before uh, we know the the United Colonies leading up to the Revolutionary War. It was Western European colonial powers that set this divinely racial precedent for the earliest uh, form of, of white Christian nationalism in America. So maybe could you give us briefly, um, Sam, just a, a few examples um, over the last few centuries of, of how this isn't just a single incident, but, but one that has been here for as long as America has existed. I'll actually kick that one to Phil. Phil is the historical comparative sociologist of the, of the two. Well, uh, sure. I, I mean, you know, you already mentioned one, which is that, you know, the idea of, of manifest destiny, right? Uh, which is, um, you know, again, a kind of a version of, of the, you know, the promised land narrative, right? That, you know, this is our promised land. And, you know, there are folks who are unjustly occupying it, who aren't really using it the way that God intended to be uh, for it to be used, and so uh, it's our it's our right to to take that land. It's our right to displace those people. Um, you know, you can see versions of that, of course, if you if you want to really go all the way back to to the beginning. I mean, you can see that in the in the colonies as well. I mean, you can see in New England. I already mentioned this idea of. Uh, you know, New England as a sort of a new Israel of the Puritans, as a, a kind of new chosen chosen people, um, and that really kind of merges then with this uh, with this pro-slavery theology uh, that kind of takes shape, uh, especially in in Virginia, um, and you can really see this in some of the earliest histories that were written about um, New England, in particular. Uh, this famous uh, work by by Cotton Cotton Mather the third the Magnalia, and then you kind of just have this script right, uh, which is you know you've got the, the sort of chosen people and and the chosen land and then these religious and cultural others who have to be displaced and dispossessed and um it's uh you know we kind of compare compare it to a movie script you know there's like some movies or just have really compelling plots and they just get remade and uh and remade and the you know the plots get tweaked a little over time and the people who are cast and the, as the protagonist the antagonist change a little bit over time and so you know it's the native americans in one version and the 17th and 18th century and then you know later it's uh it's Irish Catholics and Italian Catholics and Jews and you know now it's uh, it's it's Muslims and secular humanists and uh, you know non-native born people so it's this, this basic script is has just gotten uh, kind of recycled over and over again and I think I think here it's, it's also important to stress that uh, that this kind of the sort of outburst of rate you know righteous violence. Uh, on the part of uh, white Christian men to uh, kind of restore order, you know, restore a moral and racial and religious order, and to put uh, other others and outsiders in their place. I mean, this this too has a long history that you know goes from the Puritans' wars against the Native Americans to you know uh, anti-immigrant know-nothings uh, in the run-up to the Civil War, to the uh, so-called redeemers and the Klan during and after Reconstruction, to uh, kind of uh, anti-Irish and anti-immigrant and, and anti, uh, violence and gangs and, uh, you know, New York City and Philadelphia in the, in the early 20th century, and then right up uh, through, through January 6th. So, you know, it's 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 a really it's a really long and really deep history, and that is why we call it a deep story and try to put January six in this just very deep historical context, so that people realize it's not something new, it's not something fringe. Um, if it struck you as new or fringe, um, you know, it's just because uh, you know you're sort of outside the culture in which that all makes sense.
Well, one of the fascinating uh, things that y'all did through your study is, is very revealing. And you were looking at how white and black citizens saw the inauguration of President Biden through the eyes of potential discrimination against black people or white people. And your study found that the higher white Americans score on Christian nationalism scale, the more discrimination they believe whites will experience within the next year. Uh, moreover, regardless of what black Americans think about the place of Christianity in American politics, their beliefs that black Americans will face some discrimination starts high and stays high. But for white Americans, the more strongly they adhere to Christian nationalism, the less likely they are to think Black Americans will face much discrimination at all. Sam, help us better understand these findings. Yeah, so actually, this is, I think, one of the most important contributions of the, of the, of the book, or at least the quantitative analysis that we're doing in the book, is to show that this, like, this language of Christian nation, Christian heritage, Christian values, that, 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 is a, that seems race neutral. Uh, is in fact laden uh, with uh, with racial assumptions, uh, like uh, American Christianity, a religion in general, but American Christianity especially is is deeply racialized, fundamentally racialized, to the extent that religious language actually carries with it ethnic and racial assumptions about people like us. And so we use these questions in our little scale of Christian nationalism, and none of them have anything to do with race at all. We never we never even mention race at all. But for some reason. When white Americans read our questions and affirm our questions about Christian nationalism and, and the connection with God in, the, you know, in, in America and, and what the federal government ought to do to promote Christianity and public life, it seems to make them think of, or at least the Americans who affirm this seem to think, or the white Americans seem to affirm nostalgia uh, for a time where this country was run by people like us and it was better and it was you know, pure culturally and it was just this, this time that we want to go back to. Black Americans who read those same questions don't have in mind nostalgia. They're not trying to go back to a time where they were in charge and the culture was dominated by them or, or those kinds of things. African-Americans we find are, are actually more likely, if it changes their attitudes at all, they're more likely to think aspirationally or, or uh, the kind of uh, what we tend to think of historically as like a civil religion understanding of, of America, like a, Ameri holding America to account for the values that it says uh, it is always supported and, and, and wanted to, to institute, um, justice, equality, uh, those kinds of things. Whereas white Americans, it seems to be more about exclusion, seems to be more about cultural purity, seems to be more about hierarchies and authority. Uh, and so that is that example that you're talking about is actually just one of, of many examples that we point out where white Americans are strongly influenced by Christian nationalist ideology to embrace certain attitudes that we feel like are authoritarian, anti-democratic, uh, victim-minded very much, uh, like wrapped up in this idea of persecution towards people like us, whereas African-Americans just don't seem to be, just don't seem to res respond to Christian nationalist ideology the same way. It doesn't influence them the same way, which is one of the reasons we, we stress it is white Christian nationalism rather than this just kind of nebulous, neutral, thing called Christian nationalism, because it just doesn't operate the same way across racial groups. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, 
questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. So uh, let's take this a little bit deeper as it relates to the COVID-19 pandemic. You argued that white Christian nationalism wasn't just associated with blaming minorities outside of the country. It was also linked to the whites blaming minorities inside the country from their disproportionate infection rates. Early on in the pandemic, it became clear that the poor the minority communities were being infected with COVID-19 at a higher rate. Phil, help us understand the contradiction of facts with racist views among white Christian nationalism. Oh, the, just to kind of frame this a little bit, you know, one of the kind of strange, one of the many strange things that, that we found in doing the data analysis is that white Christian nationalism was really strongly connected with anti-masking sentiment. And, you know, if you just step back, we all know this by now, uh, but if you just step back for a second, that is a kind of a strange thing, isn't it, right? I mean, there's no 11th commandment, you know, thou shalt not wear a mask. So how did that become associated with, with white Christian nationalism? And I think there's there's sort of two things. Um, you know, one is that you know the opposition to mask wearing really comes from you know what we call a little bit tongue in cheek the holy trinity of white Christian nationalism, uh, which is freedom, order, and violence. And what that really means is freedom for people like us, order for everybody else and violence against people who get out of line. That's what freedom, order, and violence means. And you know that could be cowboys enforcing that, it could be police enforcing that, it could be militia groups enforcing that, it could be you know, the KKK enforcing that. Don't mean to equate all of those groups by any means, but you know, the, the notion being that you know, uh, order has to be, order has to be restored. And, so, you know, for uh, a certain kind of person then, for a white Christian nationalist to wear a mask, um, well, that's a violation of my freedom, right? Um, so I'm not gonna do that. But of course, uh, you know, for everybody else um, then to get sick, well, that must be their fault, right? I mean, they're, they're just sort of disorderly people. Um, so I think that's a, that's the sort of the twisted logic that uh, that connects connects all of those things. So another uh, fascinating takeaway from your study is the shift um, of who these groups fear the most. Um, one would think with the title white Christian nationalism that atheists uh, or Muslims or other faith groups would be at the top of the list. However, surprisingly, your study found that uh, WCNs have the most antipathy towards what they consider to be socialism. So what does that tell us about the connection between, um, you know, the conservative political discourse um, and, and, and the views of white Christian nationalists? Yeah, I, I actually, th I think that is one of the most uh, revealing and instructive uh, insights from our study is, is that you would think <laughs> atheists and Muslims would be at the top of the list because they represent threats to the Christian hegemony or the Christian dominance, but socialists represent something that's so much more than, than atheists or Muslims. Socialists represent and have represented for a long time, and before that it was communists, now it's socialists is the buzzword, but um, socialists represent leftism in, in all of its horror right like so everything that is it's not just economic and socialism this is this is code word this is code language socialist doesn't just mean for the right uh, and especially for the christian right socialist doesn't just mean an economic philosophy it doesn't just mean people who want to push a certain kind of economic structure or agenda socialist mean is 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 code word for everything leftist and not only economics but also socialism implies atheism 
socialism implies godlessness. And you often heard those, t- those things together, godless socialists or godless communists, that it's assumed socialists mean liberalism uh, and, and radical uh, change, uh, not just something somebody who is content with, say, progressive advance, society moves forward, but socialist implies radicalism and implies uh, godlessness. It also implies radical minority identity politics. So in a lot of the discourse that you see reading books, say, by like Dinesh D'Souza or Carol Chumley uh, or, or, or a variety of, of people who are uh, Christians on the right who would back socialism, they usually equate it to, um, say, Black Lives Matter or Antifa or the kind of perceived like radical uh, left and everything that they want to do. And, and so it is not only a religious threat, but it is also, or it's not only an economic threat, but it is a threat to religion, it is a threat to culture, it is a threat to race even. And so uh, socialists, uh, like no other term these days, encapsulate everything that white Christian nationalists fear. It's not just race, it's not just religion, it's not just anti-capitalism, it's all of those things wrapped into one. So they are the boogeyman. Uh, that if you want to if you want to shore up a lot of fear and anxiety among Americans who 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 buy into the ideology of white Christian nationalism, then socialists are your are your enemy. It, you know, in your study around their opposition to socialism, did you ask uh, those that held this view um, if they cashed their pandemic relief checks or if they sent that back to the federal <laughs> government? That's right. No, I mean, and this is the thing. Like, I mean. Life is full of all kinds of inconsistencies that are on the on the on the basis of our just our just tribal allegiances. I'll just give you one I was looking at today, and this isn't even in the book, so this is just a bonus uh, for you. We we followed these Americans around for two years, and we were we've been surveying them and interviewing them. And it turns out, before the pandemic even began, we asked Americans a series of questions about you know whether they avoid places where people are sick or whether they avoid sick people or whether they are concerned about getting contagious diseases and whether, you know, uh, basically not just germophobia, but whether they just avoid sickness and people who are sick. And we found, I was looking at this this morning, in fact, that that Americans who subscribe to Christian nationalism uh, scored the highest in terms of like avoiding disease and avoiding people who are sick and wanting to protect themselves from infection. Um, the reason that is tremendously ironic is that uh, roughly less than a year later, during the, the height of the pandemic and COVID restrictions, lockdown orders and mask mandates and all these things, white Christian nationalists were the people who were the least likely to avoid public places, wear their masks in public. Later on, they became the least likely to get the vaccine. So what does that suggest? Well, it suggests that white Christian nationalism is, is actually uh, pretty strongly correlated with uh, with fear of impurity and not just like spiritual or cultural impurity, but even physical impurity and not wanting to touch people who are sick. But it is so connected to just culture warring. It's so connected to owning the libs and 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 uh, fighting the leftists and fighting you know the, these these media elite and whoever tells you what to do that they actually end up uh, they actually end up. Uh, uh, conflicting or, or, or engaging in conflicting practices with their own tendencies in order to just score culture war victory. And obviously at, at, at the risk of their own health, but even compromising their own tendencies toward those kinds of things, if that, if that makes sense. And I just I feel like those kinds of inconsistencies we can just see uh, all over the place. Uh, uh, cult character uh, always matters uh, when... Uh, the guys I don't like are in office, and, and I want to slam them <laughs> and, and and track their character. Uh, but when my guy is in office, then character just you know, hey, uh, doesn't matter at all, and I'm willing to support the guy who is uh, punching the bully who's picking on me. All right. I mean, and this goes back to you know what we we're talking about earlier from a theological framework. You're able to, in their minds, justify it from scriptures because you have figures like Cyrus who you know was able you know not the best character, not the best person. Uh, not the best leader, uh, certainly the most best ruler, but one that can justify and give the freedom and redemption back to the Hebrew people. So, you know, uh, Donald Trump is a means to an end, you know, his character's flaws, you know, pathological liar, everything you'd name, but he, he gets us what we want, right? Um, exactly. Okay, so let's talk about why this particular worldview 
of white Christian nationalism is a threat to American democracy. Um, lay that out for us, Phil. Well, sure. So I think I, I think the big reason really just is this this increasing sense of threat that um, a lot of conservative white Christians feel right now. This sense, like, wow, you know, we're no longer in the majority, and in, you know, d- democracy is about majority rule. And uh, what are we going to do about that? Are we going to limit the vote? Are we going to you know, get rid of democracy altogether? Are we gonna, you know, put a strong man uh, in the White House who will protect us? And I think you find, you know, varying degrees of support for all of those things. So um, you can, uh, you know, Sam can uh, give even more details to this, but, uh, you know, in our analysis, we find a bunch of things. And we find that white Christian nationalism is uh, really strongly connected with, um, opposition to voting reform and support for voting restrictions. It's correlated with support for gerrymandering. It's correlated also with support for the Electoral College, you know, which as we know gets an advantage to uh, you know, certain groups of groups of voters. Um, and uh, recently Sam just tweeted this out uh, today. Uh, it's really strongly correlated with uh, belief in the big lie. Uh, I mean, the, the slope on that, that, that line and that graph that, uh, that he tweeted around today is just absolutely stunning. Um, you know, how strongly correlated it is. And so I, I think the bottom line is that uh, sort of increasingly over the last decade or so, and especially uh, during the Trump years, uh, you know, white Christian nationalists have really taken a, a strong authoritarian turn. You know, there was a, so long as conservative white Christians were a, a majority in the country, they could kind of feel comfortable with democracy up to a certain point. But I think uh, now they really, they feel threatened by democracy. Um, and, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that they, they will say they hate democracy. I mean, often what they, what they, but, but, but when they talk about democracy, what they really mean is like our rights, you know, our power, um, you know, our, our freedom. They don't really mean, you know, equal access to the ballot for everybody or, you know, one person, one vote or kind of rule of law or checks and balances. You know, what they really mean is, you know, our rights and uh, somebody who's going to protect them. That's increasingly what democracy mean to them, which is to say it increasingly means something like an authoritarian form of government. Sam? Yeah, so white Christian nationalism is a threat to democracy because it is fundamentally anti-democratic. We we show in the book and we have found uh, elsewhere in peer-reviewed studies, uh, but we elaborate on these uh, more completely in the book, that uh, the more Americans, white Americans in particular, subscribe to white Christian nationalism, the more likely they are to view voting as a as a privilege rather than a right. In other words, something that we can take away or we can limit rather than something that shall not be infringed. Uh, white Americans who subscribe to Christian nationalism are more likely to say that they would support hypothetical civics tests in order to vote. That's, that's Jim Crow stuff right there, uh, that, uh, that they would support revoking the voting rights of certain criminal offenders for life. Uh, that they already, even before the election, even before the 2020 election, mind you, we found that white Christian nationalism was associated with white Americans believing that we already make it too easy to vote, that they would like to, to make it more difficult. It should be more exclusive. In other words, it, uh, um, uh, it, is, it is something that, that should be limited to the worthy few. Uh, we also find that white Christian nationalism is, uh, and this is, I, I think this is interesting, uh, it is negatively associated with feeling that we should do anything about gerrymandering as it is. You know, we, we ask this question, hey, you know, uh, how much do you agree with the statement? We should address gerrymandering in order to ensure fairer congressional elections. Well, the fact is, uh, white Americans who subscribe to Christian nationalism are currently benefiting from gerrymandering, from racial gerrymandering. Uh, Democrats have done this too, but Republicans are are doing it well now and 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 are able to score uh, electoral victories in Congress through that. Uh, and so, white Christian nationalism inclines Americans to say, you know what, gerrymandering, it's okay. I don't really, I don't think we really need to address that. It's not a problem. Uh, or even to deny that voter suppression is a problem and to believe that voter fraud is rampant. So in other words, so white Christian nationalism 
is is about limiting cultural influence of the people who are on the outside. If if, if this is a fundamentally an us versus them ideology, well, you don't want them to have a place at the table. You don't want them to have a say in the government and how you know uh, culture is supposed to go. You believe that should be limited to the people who are worthy, the people who are on the inside, the people who are rightfully the the rulers of of power and culture, uh, and that is white traditionalist, conservative, native-born Christians, and primarily men. Uh, so that is a threat to democracy. Uh, another reason that is a, a threat to democracy is, is we find that white Christian nationalism is powerfully associated with support for situational uh, political violence. Uh, this is something we, we underscore in the book. We didn't find that Americans who are higher on Christian nationalism like violence for its own sake. In other words, they don't subscribe to just you know violence uh, for fun, right? Like it's, they're, they're not violent people necessarily. But we do find that white Christian nationalism is powerfully associated with support for uh, utilitarian, not utilitarian, but authoritarian violence that is used to control pop- problem populations. So, you know, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, or you support the use of torture uh, if if national security is at risk, or uh, that the police should be able to use any means necessary in order to maintain law and order. Um, those might not sound like outlandish statements, but but they point, paint a picture of people who are not just uh, open to violence, but in fact favor political violence when it is used uh, when they, when the thing that they love or the, the order that they cherish is under threat. And that is, I mean, that's the kind of thing that we saw at the insurrection, right? Like that is violence used toward what they what they thought was a was an important uh, end. And the last thing I would just say is, is we also find that Christian nationalism, white Christian nationalism especially, is strongly associated with belief in conspiracy theories. Uh, obviously, a, a hugely powerful one is the big lie, uh, the idea of a stolen election, which has been debunked, and of course, but, it, but it's, it's, it's Americans who subscribe to white Christian nationalism are uh, still very much convinced that the election was stolen. Uh, that QAnon, QAnon conspiracies, that the government and the media uh, and the financial worlds are run by an elite ring of, 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 of democratic uh, pedophile sex traffickers. Uh, that, that, believe it or not, that is that is strongly associated with white Christian nationalism, as is belief that like Antifa and Black Lives Matter started the capital violence, uh, that the that the the COVID vaccines have killed hundreds of people. And that they're not effective at all. All of these kinds of conspiratorial uh, beliefs that are not based in fact, but they're based in just kind of pleasant, you know, tales that I'd like to believe about the people I hate. Uh, so put all of that together, Andy, and you've got a you've got a powder keg. You've got these pressures building beneath that just are waiting for a uh, a a the kind of political rhetoric or a mob to just activate, and then what you get is January sixth. What do you hope to gain through um, publishing this book? You know, what do you hope for your readers? What do you hope for, you know, maybe organizational leaders that are trying to create opportunities for conversations, whether that be, you know, in a congregation, a denomination, um, you know, what do you, what do you hope to gain? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, uh, first, uh, we we wrote it as a warning, uh, not only in, in information, but we, we believe in the title that, that, that white Christian nationalism is a threat to American democracy for the reasons I outlined. Um, so we we want people to be aware of the problem. We want people to be specifically, we want them to be aware that this, this ideology is not fringe, that you look at January 6th and you look at, I mean, this is unfortunate, the, the most repeated image having to do with the Capitol uh, attacks is the is the guy screaming at the top of his lungs with Viking horns and, and, and for like a guy who just looks like uh, a nut, the QAnon shaman, right? Like the, he, and and it makes people think like, wow, these people were nuts. Like these people were just uh, nobody I know. In other words, like nobody I know would do this or think that way. But the fact is, most of the people who were attending this thing were going back home to just evangelical churches, and and they and this this kind of ideology was fostered within those communities, and they went back to those communities where other people agree with them. So. We want to stress that, like this ideology, yes, the Capitol was an extreme example, but this kind of ideology is pervasive and it has a long history, uh, and it and it, it and it is there to be activated under the right kinds of situations. And we want to uh, engage 
uh, that kind of ideology to to be able to dismantle it, to question it, to challenge it, to 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 call it to account, and to say, hey, this is inconsistent with our fundamental values in American democracy. But we also want to, and this is what we do at the end of the book, and so I, I don't want to give the impression that we are engaging in an us versus them kind of thing with secular Americans or religious Americans. And in fact, we call for a coalition, a broader coalition at the end of the book, uh, defeating the threat that white Christian nationalism and similar ideologies pose to American democracy isn't going to be a, a secular versus religious fight. It will be a it will be it will require cooperation uh, on the side of people who are more secular, but also people Christians who, who are and religious Americans who are very concerned uh, about the threat of this ideology. And one of the things that, that I'm proud to participate in, and and um, uh, over the last couple of months, I've been able to sit on panels with Jamar Tisby, uh, who is who is an outspoken Christian and a, and a minister, uh, as well as Andrew Seidel who is an, an, an outspoken atheist and a lawyer. Uh, and we're all speaking on the same panels for the same reason, because this, this, um, this threat of white Christian nationalism we see as, as contradictory to the kind of society that we, we believe America could be, and that we think most Americans believe America could be. Uh, and so we want to cooperate with one another in order to inform the public and to hopefully have more conversations about why this is a, a something we should look out for. Well, I think there's a, so what we're sort of hoping will come out of the book is, um, you know, partly just to make, uh, you know, especially secular folks, progressive folks, um, understand that this is a, you know, this is a, a very powerful ideology that's work at work in, in American, in American politics. And, you know, people who think, well, you know, all we got to do is, uh, you know, pass some good social policy or, you know, redistribute the wealth a little bit, you know, and then, you know, it'll all, it'll all be good, um, I, I think, are, are, are fooling themselves. And we also want to make people realize that now isn't just policy. I mean, it's, it's our very democracy. And uh, that it may be that folks who disagree pretty strongly even about some policies need for some period of time to set aside those disagreements and uh, make a, a kind of a coalition uh, to to defend defend democracy, right? And so the way I put it this sometimes is we kind of need a you know coalition that extends all the way from you know democratic socialists, uh, to never Trumpers, uh, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, we're going to band together in defense of democracy, even though they might really disagree about foreign policy or economic policy or, or, or social policy. But you know, that's that that's not going to be enough. And uh, you know, and I, I I think there's a lot of work that that this book can't do by itself. Um, you know, I think that. It, it is there's there's a lot of really important work to be done within faith communities, and that is only going to happen, uh, you know, when Christians speak as Christians to other Christians, when Christian leaders, uh, you know, speak to to folks within their, you know, who are who are in their care under their pastoral care, um, you know, that's people who they trust. And the truth is, there's just a lot of folks out there who are not going to trust a couple of of sociologists about this. I mean, they, uh, you know, they're 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 not going to trust this message unless they hear it from you know, somebody who's who's closer closer to them and somebody who's speaking in a theological language instead of instead of a sociological language. And so, I think a lot of the the task for for faith leaders is is going to be to uh, kind of um, you know help people to understand. Uh, what's going on, and above all, to kind of give them, um, you know, kind of translate this message uh, into into more into more theological terms. Um, I mean, uh, you know, and here certainly, uh, you know, Baptists with, you know, their very long, you know, history of of under, you know, of understanding the dangers of too close of a relationship between, you know, governmental power and uh, and religious power. You know, it being a, you know, a a faith community that was really born in opposition to 
that kind of union of, of state, uh, state and church and, and really understanding the importance of religious freedom, including the freedom not to be religious, you know, understanding the kind of the bedrock importance of the, the freedom of, of conscience and, you know, understanding their own Christianity as, as a kind of a faith, you know, which is, which is chosen voluntarily, you know, by, by individuals as opposed to being something that somehow, you know, forced down people's throats from on high. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the sort of Baptist faith leaders are in that sense, you know, in a particularly good position uh, to, to make this translation uh, within, uh, within uh, uh, you know, various communities of faith in the United States. If you don't mind me asking, um, are, are you a person of faith? I am, yeah. You know, so as a person of faith, looking at how, especially the term Christian has been tagged to this movement, um, you know, there's so many reasons to, to be, you know, worrisome and fraught about uh, what what it's doing to the name of of this faith, but in what ways are you hopeful about people's awareness of this and trying to uh, make the world around us more aware of a different brand of Christianity, if you will? Well, there, I, I'm sure you know you're aware as I am. I'm sure many of your listeners will be aware of this too. That uh, there there's a lot of there's a lot of turmoil out there right now in, in faith communities um, you know, around the United States. Um, you know, there, sometimes this is the, you know, the conflicts are around, you know, uh, sort of racial justice, you know, sometimes around economic justice, sometimes they're around uh, sort of gender equality, you know, sometimes they're around environmental stewardship um, and, you know, so I I do see you know signs of of, of hope, right? That there that there are folks who um, you know are in, you know increasingly uh, you know aware of the way in which um, you know Christianity uh, has been hijacked by by politics, and uh, you know think that it's that it's time to sort of reclaim that, and you know to, to sort of establish a certain amount of distance again between. Uh, you know, between between faith, faith and politics, you know, to realize that, you know, as, as a person of faith, you know, you have a, you do have a certain duty, a certain degree of civic duty, a sort of duty to your to your community, to your fellow citizens, uh, but to realize that that's not a duty to a party, uh, and that's not a duty to an ideology, that's a duty to, uh, you know, particular tradition of faith, a particular tradition of, of ethics, and that you need to you know, put that front and center uh, instead of putting, you know, your, you know, your tribal uh, partisan allegiances first and foremost. Our guests are Dr. Philip S. Gorski and Dr. Samuel L. Perry. The book is The Flag and the Cross. Gentlemen, it's been a joy to talk with you. Thank you for creating an amazing resource to shed light on one of the most challenging sources of social, political, and religious division in America. It's a privilege. Thanks so much for having us. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK offers multiple ways to pursue theological education, helping you learn and grow in your area of ministry. Programs include a 75-hour Master of Divinity degree with concentration in BSK's areas of emphasis, including Black Church Studies, Rural Ministry, and Pastoral Care. For ordained ministers or lay leaders alike, BSK offers nine-hour certificates in Black Church Studies, Rural Ministries, and Pastoral Care, as well as two Exploring Ministry Certificates for General Ministry Training. BSK also offers additional subject-specific training with Flourish workshops in subjects such as Introduction to Youth Ministry, Essentials in Youth Ministry, and the upcoming The Flight of the Soul of America. Now enrolling for Fall 2022. Apply today at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, 
I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 